Amen. As you're seated, just a reminder, uh, kiddos, if you would like to head out this door, this there's candy, this door right here, uh, all the way through fifth grade, not just third grade, as the slide says, just up that. And uh, so you are welcome to go. Um, I know that there has been, this is not related to the, the sermon at all, um, a lot of discussion over the last few years about church choirs. And uh, if you grew up in church, no doubt you grew up in a church with a choir and maybe robes and all, all of that. And uh, I grew up, uh, anytime we were at church, choir was a big deal. Um, I always longed to be in the choir, though, because I couldn't see. I would have been like Barney Fife if you watched him when he joined the choir. And the, he was convinced he was singing, but it was just a guy in the back singing for him. I, I would be that. But y'all, I just want to thank you. You allow me to be a part of the choir. Um, this is a choir, this whole worship service. And, and I really think that's the aim. I, I think where we may have, I, I appreciate choirs, but, but the idea of, of watching as opposed to participating is, is what we see played out in, in the heavenly choir. We are participating in the heavenly choir. And so um, we, if people ask us, Perkins will have a choir, say yes and come be a part of it. Um, is really a cool thing that you can do. Um, I've not heard a choir is beautiful and I get to be a part, uh, you know, even though I am like Barney Fife. So thank you. We're going to be in, in Luke chapter 19. We're finishing out the chapter and the story continues into uh, chapter 20 all the way through the 18th verse. There's always a challenge. Do you pause in Advent and return to the beginning of Luke where we'll start over? No, I'm just kidding. We wouldn't do that. But do you do you do you pause? And I think there's good reason to pause and enter into an Advent series. Um, or do you just continue working through a book of the Bible? And um, there's not an answer here. Sometimes we will pause. Sometimes we won't. We're going to continue working through 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 Luke. But I would very much tie this. Um, we very much tie this to the idea of anticipation and, and advent, but honestly, the uniqueness of the birth. Um, I had I had been raised and and came to know a birth narrative that was cuddly and cute, and and it was always nice to celebrate a baby at Christmas time. Um, you know, it didn't really have to make sense in my mind. It was just like, okay, God was born, Emmanuel. That's awesome. He had no place to lay his head. He was sad. But the first time I read the birth narrative, just through the lens of something like Colossians 1, it doesn't have to be Colossians 1, but I want you just, just to, to look upon the lowly manger for a minute and recognize the humility and vulnerability of a Savior who, who submitted himself even to in, um, infancy. And I just want you to imagine the way we think often about the lowly Savior, the lowly manger scene, the cute animals that are coming around and I want you just to read it through these couple verses out of Colossians 1, uh, which I'll put on the screen for you. Paul writes these words of Jesus. He says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's in the frame of an infant that the image of the invisible God would lay there. 
Jesus coming in the form of an infant as a child, fully human from that lowly manger. He, he's not one who would grow up and receive kingship, right? It's, it's not that he would receive his reward or his authority or his ownership. It was already with him. Like Jesus, even in the Christmas narrative, came as rightful ruler and owner of all creation. He came not to receive it, but to demonstrate it. And that's kind of the mystery for me of of Christmas. The, The mystery of a baby clothed in flesh already owned all that sat before him. The, The star that the wise men watched and followed, Christ owned it and owns it. Right, The hay where he laid his head in that manger, because there was no room for them at the end. Christ had rightful rule to all of it. And so this baby laying there, we, we associate rightly so the innocence right, and of Christ certainly, but, but I see the Christmas narrative in this powerful way that who would have thought that this child already had rightful claim to all of creation? Paul writes in, first, in, in Colossians 1 there, excuse me, that, that, that is very much true. Here's the point of me saying that. It's like we're not waiting for, for, for Jesus to rule. He already rules. Like the second advent of Christ, the return of Christ, we're not waiting for him to to, to receive those things. He already has them. All Jesus does is claim them. That's who Jesus is. We're simply waiting for Jesus to demonstrate his rule again. That's what we're anticipating. We know it to be true. Christ, it's already yours. Come demonstrate that where every knee will bow. And all of creation will rightly subject itself before you, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's, that's the remnant of the church. Like we claim to know this, that none of this, the world and everything in it, according to the psalmist we've already heard today, it's already Christ's. It's already his. Now, now that's easy for us to look at the, the Rockies or the Grand Canyon and say, oh God, that is yours. But when it comes to the things entrusted to us, this is where it gets a little sticky. Yes, my wallet is yours. Yes, my life is yours. My gifts are yours. My vocation, my education, my family, my friends, my children, my church, it's all yours. That's where it gets a little difficult. That's where it becomes a little more challenging because none of us, I think, claim ownership over the Grand Canyon or the expanse of mountains. But I think we do claim ownership over those seemingly smaller things. We claim rightful ownership over those things in our own minds. And that's just not true. I want to just demonstrate through these stories today and a parable today. I want to just tell you a statement of fact. You don't own it. I don't own it. We don't own it. But I want to just dig deeper below the surface to show you the dangers of it, to show you the dangers of assuming ownership and the bad things that happen when we assume ownership over things we don't own. And I also just want to like experience the joy and mercy of the true owner, God himself, and watch the way in which he handles and manages his creation. We see all of that come out. So we don't own it. I'll say that a few times, but we probably need a reminder. The story continues with Jesus entering the temple for the first time since he was 12 years old to teach. And he gets there and he doesn't like what he sees. Luke chapter 19 tells us in verse 45 that Jesus entered the temple and immediately began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. 
One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Just pause here as a complete aside. We are so quick often to try to give answers to people. And I think we would be well served to be like Jesus in this way, to ask better questions of people. I I think we're so quick to try to rebut, prove, reprove, and come back with a statement to basically show off nothing more than our own intellect or wit. I think we might be wise to ask better questions. And that's exactly what Jesus does so often. It's just like he asked Pontius Pilate often. Verse 5 says, and they discuss this question with one another, knowing if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. The power of optics, right? Just do what looks best, even if it's not true. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He turns from the religious leaders. He does not teach them the parable, but they hear it. He looks at them. He looks at the followers and he tells the story. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants who went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son and perhaps they will respect him. Other translations say, perhaps they will feel shame. Perhaps they will feel shame for that, for what they've done to me. But when this tenant saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Jesus says, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is it that is written? This that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So at, a, at an immediate level, let me just say this is clearly a warning to the religious leaders and the Jewish people who rejected Jesus. He is clearly teaching a lesson here about the vineyard owner himself giving the vineyard, the, giving the responsibilities and the privileges of the vineyard to the Gentile people about bringing salvation and joy and goodness to peoples who had otherwise been outside of the covenant. That, that's like, so if we are in this context, we have a lot to learn. Does that mean that as Protestants, evangelical Christians, as, 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 as modern folks, that this does not apply to us? No, it means that we follow the same paths and principles that they followed themselves, the same errors and misthinkings that they, they followed. They, the same dangers face us that face them. And it's, it's really a danger in this text of assuming or desiring ownership that you don't have the right to, right? That's the danger happening in the text, the danger of assumed ownership. Now, 
That doesn't begin with a story of the, of the, of the wicked tenants. I, I, subtitles in the Bible kind of ruin the story for me. It's like tells you what's going to happen. I don't like, because my Bible says the parable of the wicked tenants. Well, I know they're wicked. I haven't even read it yet, you know? So, but, but there's, but it doesn't even begin there. It really goes back to what Jesus, Jesus is teaching the parable. Uh, he's teaching a lesson about something he's witnessed personally. And what he's witnessed at the temple is, is a disastrous, the disastrous consequence of, of the religious people believing they had the authority to do things they didn't have the authority to do. I mean, it goes back to that point. And ultimately, the whole passage is a story of confusing tenancy or tenants' responsibilities, privileges, and rights, and ownership. And, and those are very different. A tenant has uh, the privilege to, to, to enjoy quiet, the quiet enjoyment of property. That's what, that's what renting is. If you live in an apartment, um, you have the, 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 the protection that your landlord is not going to bust in unannounced just to inspect the carpet, Right. So you get to enjoy the property that belongs to someone else. You have a responsibility to care for that property. This goes back to what Matt's already read this morning in Genesis 1 and 2. You see, a, you see humanity as tenants of God's property. And so I'm going to let you enjoy and receive the benefits of my property. Ownership's very different because a tenant can never sell that property or make major modifications to that property. It is the owner's property. They, the tenant does not have the deed. This is, again, what's happening throughout the scripture. Genesis 1, you've already heard some of these words this morning in chapter 1, verses 28 through 31 of Genesis. Not only does he create all of this, but he says, I'm going to, to give you the privilege and responsibility of stewardship, having dominion over, over all that is in creation. And I'm going to give you, uh, Every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit and over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens and everything that has the breath of life. I've given every green plant for food. Enjoy the fruit of my creation. At no point does he say my creation is yours. He says you are a steward, a tenant, a manager, hopefully and prayerfully a joyful one to have dominion over such things. And so this happens early on. And of course we, we go the wrong way with it rather than, than being joyful recipients of God's creation. We want to be like God ourselves. We know how that goes. God has always and consistently in scripture, mercifully, mercifully offered us access to himself. That's kind of, that is a recurring truth of scripture. And so you, you, it, whether it's in creation, whether it's in the, the city of David, right? I will give you this city, this temple. I will let you build this temple and I will dwell with you. I will, his, the whole relationship between kind of tenancy or stewardship and God's gracious ownership has been the, the, the I will let, I will be amongst you and you'll be amongst me. We will have access. We will work this covenantal relationship out together. And so this modern temple that Jesus finds is very different. It's very different. They assumed some responsibilities and some rights that none of them had. Jesus sees them selling. And it's really kind of, it's condensed here in Luke's gospel. Matthew's tells us that they were selling pigeons. And so we, this, is, this is significant. If God's desire has been communion and dwelling with his people and his people with him, he accomplished that through the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. 
You have sins. Those sins must be atoned for. Therefore, sacrifice a lamb and a dove, right? That kind of thing. You sacrifice for the sin. But these folks sold pigeons. Why is that significant? Often we'll look at this and we'll kind of make some modern applications. Well, we can't, you can't sell stuff in the, in the church house, right? So anybody who's trying to sell their essential oils is not allowed to sell their essential oils here because of this passage. It's not really like that. This was, this was a, an exploitation of people. In Leviticus, we read these words where God makes an exception. Leviticus chapter 5, he says, here's what you must sacrifice, but here's what I'm going to allow. Chapter 5 verse 7 says, if a person cannot afford a lamb for a burnt offering, then he shall bring the Lord to the Lord as compensation for the sin that he has committed, two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. It was the poorest of people who depended upon the pigeons to make atonement for their sins. And so really what's happening in the temple is the exploitation of the most vulnerable and the least of society, the poorest of society. In assuming ownership and some good business acumen in their minds, what they had done essentially was blocked access between God and man. They had, they had inhibited that which God did not ask or desire to be inhibited. This is a danger, and so it frustrates Jesus. Jesus doesn't just bust in because they're selling Tupperware. Jesus busts in because they have assumed responsibility and ownership, and in doing so, they have actually blocked and prevented people's access to God. The same thing happens in the church when we assume ownership over her. We tend to get ugly and nasty and managerial and make an impression of God that is simply not biblical or accurate, actually blocking and impeding people's access to the Father. I've seen it a bunch. You've seen it a bunch. When we assume ownership over the church, this is mine. This is ours. This is our thing to do. This is, this is what we must do together. Or, or, and we tend to make fools of ourselves in the process and ultimately paint a picture of the gospel that is not the gospel at all. But the greater problem with ownership when you assume ownership, and this is not just the church, this is, this is your finance, this is your, this is your education, this is your vocation, this is your family, this is your friends, is that it creates and feeds on us this little thing called flesh. <laughs> this idea uh, that if we have that, we'll be okay. If we just get this, we'll be all right. I mean, how many times have you said, if I just had X amount more dollars a month, I think we'd be okay, right? If we just had a little more... More is never enough, though. I, I don't know when you get to the point where you're like, that's enough. Like, I'm good. Like, imagine just going to a vending machine, and it, this vending machine has this not tied to your bank account. It's just like an ATM, but it's not tied to reality. You can get as much money as you want. Like, when do you stop? When do you stop? Like, I got 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20. It, it, initially, you start saying, I'm going to go get enough money. I'm going to go draw enough cash to go get this thing. And then you get this thing, and this thing needs new things. And those things need new things. And before you know this, your thing, that's used, and so you need to go get a new one. It's never enough. It's, it's what's happening here in this vineyard situation. Like, these guys just signed a lease on land, and the owner, the, the, the vineyard owner, literally said, he says, you, you get to harvest this stuff, you get to have, I mean, it's just like Genesis 1. You, you get all this stuff. Enjoy the harvest. Enjoy the fruit. Owner just sends a servant back. Get a few fruits. No, we can't, we can't let go of that. We, we need every little bit of this thing. And, and so immediately you see 
almost like you do in Lord of the Rings with Gollum just getting more and more obsessed over his lifespan with the ring of power. And I can feel that. Like when I read the story over and over and over, I was like, every time a servant went, I was like, was this enough? When is enough enough? Like how much must you do? How many servants must you be? Right? Because you're never satisfied with this. And so this whole, this whole parable is really given in the middle of that type of religious culture. I mean, these, these guys are obsessed with control and power, and they even know when they question Jesus' authority, if they answer it wrong, these are like politicians, if they answer it wrongly, there's going to be an uprising. If they answer it honestly, they, there's, there is an obsession with power and control in this story. And he's come, Jesus is coming head to head with the power, with the conceptions of power, of dominion and authority. He is coming head to head with the, with the idea of what is ownership and what is stewardship, what is ours and what is God's. And the problem with all of this, one of the problems in the midst of all of this is that they misunderstand the covenantal terms between God and his people. This land this temple, it's not their right. Like they don't have rights to this. That we live in a culture obsessed with that type of language. That's my right. It's my right. But we don't, we don't live in a culture that recognizes privilege in, in the sense that scripture uses it. True, God-given privilege to cultivate creation and make something of it in the name of the Father or responsibility to that creation. These are words that have been twisted and confused and contorted in all kinds of cultural ways, but this was not their right. This was not a, this was not a Western or an American idea of, oh, this is my right to the land. They confused it and they assumed their right to the land. They forgot their owner. They forgot the, the covenant, the deal, the contract, the relationship and the roles within it. This was not, a, 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 this was not a, an understanding that the owner could call upon any amount of the harvest at any time, that he could send whoever he wanted to the land. And this was his, this was his right to the land. There's only one who has ultimate rights, and that's God the Father. And in this story, he's very much the vineyard owner. Man, if it's not clear, we're going to talk about the character of the vineyard owner in just a minute. But I have seen this pollute my heart, my life. I've seen this pollute churches. This idea that this stuff is ours. That we get to dictate what happens next. That we have the control and power. Or that... It depends on someone or something other than the cornerstone. When we lose sight of ownership and lose sight of who owns all of it, when we lose sight of that, we make the same mistake. We underestimate the power of our flesh and the pride of our hearts, and we just, we just take it over. And, and that, that's not just church. That's your job. That's your money. That's your family. When we forget it's all on loan from a good and loving father, we mess up. And so I'm just saying like, like let's let I, you can see it. The character, like I don't want the character of these wicked tenants. They're wicked, right? The Bible tells us that I, I want, I want the character of the vineyard owner. Like I want that. I want the owner to be the owner, like let the owner be the owner. That, that's what I want to see. Cause I, we just mess and muck stuff up. So Bobby Townsend, if you don't know Bobby, let me just describe Bobby for you in a, in a short 
if you know Bobby, it's great. But Bobby, if you've been here, not if you weren't here pre-COVID, you don't know Bobby Townsend. But Bobby and Ted and makes an amazing chocolate cake. But they are some of the sweetest people I've ever met. And she was she was in ICU the last few days trying to figure out blood pressure issues, and she's going home today. But we were sitting there on the phone. We were crying together, man. Bobby's got me crying. I'm, you know, I'm a tough guy until I talk to Bobby Townsend. She makes me cry because we cry together about life. And uh, she, she has not been around the church building in a, in a year and a half. But she always tells me, she goes, she always apologizes for it. I said, Bobby, stop apologizing. Stop apologizing. She goes, I pray every day for that place. And she goes, and I bet you it's very different than it was. I said, it is very different, Miss Bobby. And she goes, well, she goes, whatever's happening, I just pray. And I pray every day that God's having his way, not our way. And I said, I said, Miss Bobby, there's a lot of people you don't know there anymore. She goes, I know that. I said, there's a lot of people that you'd love to meet. I know that and I can't wait to. But she says, but I believe, and we talked through this conversation, I believe God's having his way. Now, what Miss Bobby would tell you is that she would prefer to walk into this building and know every single face in here and sing the same song she's been singing since she was little. Boy, I'd love to see her sing those songs. But she knows there's a better, she knows there's something that's far better than her way or her experiences and her memories, as I do too. And whether it's church or my family or my friends or your preferences or your desires, there is a better way. And it's letting the owner be the owner because what he does in this story, nobody, none of y'all, not me, none of y'all would do. None of y'all would do. The owner has had three servants beaten. Three servants go to get some fruit and beaten. Now I'm going to tell you what every one of you in some way, some form, some variety, or me, probably going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to get mad because this is, this is my land. This is my land. This is my first amendment. Wait, excuse me. I didn't mean to say this is my land. <laughs> and I'm going to call my big friend, Travis. And I'm going to say, Travis, I'm going to tell you what these honkies are doing down on the farm. <laughs> get over here now, two guns, bring the stuff in the, in the barn too. He's going to come over here. We're going to talk and say, Travis, he's going to get mad with me. Like they shouldn't do that. It's your land. That's your land, brother. Those are your pomegranates. <laughs> and we're going to get us a posse. And we're going to do like Cain to Abel and everybody else and all the fleshly ways. And we're going to storm the farm. And we're going to take back what's ours. That's, that's our way, right? And that's reasonable. I bet you all were going to go, you should do. That's your land, buddy. You know? What shall I do, he says. What shall I do? What shall I do? I got an idea. And we're all looking at him like he's crazy. I've had three servants beat, shamed. I'm going to send my beloved son. The track record's not good. The chances are not that they're going to say, oh, you're the son. We were confused. We beat the mess out of your servants, but your son, we're just going to adore. Here's the fruit. Take it. What shall I do? How shall I exercise my ownership? How shall I demonstrate my rightful ownership and authority? Bring out all the tanks and the armies? No, not the war horse. I'm going to ride a donkey. I'm going to send my beloved son. And he knows the consequence. He knows the consequence. 
there is um there are some good things that that some good stories that come out of the 80s and one of those stories comes out of the middle east this was in one of the commentaries on this passage um Hussein of Jordan, the king of Jordan, uh, obviously the king. And there's a story that there one night his security detail comes to the king in the late 80s, and they inform him that there are about 75 members of the Jordanian army who are meeting in town planning his overthrow. They're going to, it's going to be a coup. They're going to, they're going to, remove the king and take over. And so this is, this is really cool story because it's true. (laughs) Um, so he calls for his helicopter and he flies over to the location where the Intel, that the Intel provides and he gets out of the helicopter and he tells his pilot, he says, if you hear gunshots, I just want you to leave. And, um, he travels down two flights of stairs from the helipad down to where the 75 officers of the military are meeting. Could you imagine the air in that room when the king walks down the stairs, not with an entourage, but by himself? And he appears before the conspirators and he says along these lines, gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you are meeting here tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow the government, to take over the country and to install a military dictator. But if you do this, the army will break apart and the country will be plunged into civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There is no need for this. Here I am. So kill me and proceed. That way, only one man will die. And after this moment of stunned silence in the face of of a king. The rebels, almost as one, rushed forward to kiss the king's hand and pledge loyalty to him for life. And so what's happening in the story, that weird thing that you're feeling that you can't put words to, but you just know it's not normal, is called vulnerability. The king made himself vulnerable, even his own life, laid down in vulnerability before the conspirators who sought to kill him. And the reason that we feel it, but we don't know the right word for that moment is because it's such a rare occurrence in this life. But it's the same thing that we see in the vineyard owner. But more specifically, it's the same thing we see. We see in God the Father who sends his son to a people who have shamed him not once, not twice, but three times already. We do the opposite. We reinforce our borders, pull up our bootstraps, and show the world that we have it all under control. And in the midst of that, people actually lose sight of the purpose of the true gospel. The church who is willing to pull up her bootstraps and do these kinds of things loses sight of the gospel and before long has no gospel to give. When we claim ownership, we forget the reality that it all belongs to God. We don't own it. We don't own it. We're called to participate and join with God in His holy and royal mission and the great commission and taking the gospel to the nations. But this is why we're called simply to bow on our knees before the rightful owner because this is the owner who, not, who does not storm in with an army but storms in with mercy. 
And what's sad about this story as opposed to the, the occurrences that happened in Jordan in the 80s is that they can't see it. They can't see it because their hearts, their, their minds, their flesh is already gone and captivated with more, 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 more control and power and ownership and authority. And so they recognize that, look, here's a business venture. If the heir to this land dies, we get squatter's rights and we will finally own it. We'll have it. It reminds me of the Tower of Babel. It reminds me of creation itself claiming ownership, rebelling even in this day, even in this hour. Where are the people who know the character and truth of the true owner? Where is the church who knows that there is a God in heaven who created the heavens and the earth and even the people to plow the fields? We don't own it, church. Like when we look at our money, it's never going to be enough. It's not ours in the first place. Your life is not yours in the first place. Your job, your school, your calling, your wife, your kids, your, your husband, your anyone in all of creation, it's, it's not yours. You can't manage it like he can. You'll never own it. So quit holding on to it like it's yours. Let go of it. See it in the eyes of the good and faithful and merciful and gracious owner. And so as I think about all of this, the world and everything in it belongs to God. Your home and everything in it belongs to God. Your heart and everything in it belongs to God. The church and everything in it belongs to God. Your life and everything in it belongs to God. And so as we live this season... Advent, anticipating the second advent of Christ as we live this season knowing that the Son will return again, right? Anticipating His return. The question becomes one of posture. In what posture or how will He find us here? Will He find us here as faithful stewards of joyful tenants? Or will He find us as zealous backbiters assuming ownership and seeking more of it, more of it, more of it, more of it? I pray that he finds his people, the only ones in all of creation who know, the, who know the rightful owner. I pray that he finds us joyful, faithfully, stewarding his creation. Because we don't own it. And we will sing this morning after I pray of the King of Kings. And even retell the story of the true and good vineyard owner. Let me pray for us. So God, man, I don't even I don't even know exactly what what to pray here, Father. Probably just because there's a, a bit of a whirlwind of thoughts in my mind. So I'm gonna, I'm just gonna pray like Miss Miss Bobby does. Say, God, have your way. I don't know how a, w a woman who feels like she's at the hands of medicines and doctors well I, I'm just thankful she can say those words and mean them have your way because your way is is far different than ours we know that you tell us that your concept of time, far different than ours. 
your, your, your knowledge of what is possible and impossible far different than ours. Your vision and hope for our lives, boy, we spend a lifetime trying to see ours aligned with yours. But it's yours, Father, because you're the owner. You've, you've got it all. You've, you, you, you own every bit of it, every, every penny and um, every bit of encouragement, every, every friendship, every relationship, every job opportunity. It's all yours. And so when our king returns, Lord, I I pray that he finds a people who are joyfully stewarding that has been entrusted to us. Father, this is a a cosmic battle between ownership, a claim that we don't have, but one that we want to take. It's that which separates sinners from a holy God because we claim ownership and authority over our own lives. Until we can see the God who is and repent of this endlessly chaotic cycle called sin and call out the name of Jesus, accept the son you send. Lord, help us just see in this moment. I, I can't, I can't pray an application for every person in this room, but yet there is certainly one for each of us. And so as we celebrate a season that is often marketed, exploited, leaves us feeling cheap and empty at the end of it, even help us steward this season because it's yours. We love you and we're so thankful that you own and rule your creation with the mercy that you rule. When we deserved an army to overrun us, you sent your son. And it's in the king's, your son's, our king's name that I pray. Amen.